Hello and welcome to Spy Hard's podcast. For the next hour, your hosts will go deep undercover into the world of spy movies to decipher which films make the knock list. But remember, this information is strictly for your ears only. I'm Agent Scott. And I'm Cam, the provocateur. Well, Cam, what are we looking at this week? We are going to go back to 1962, swing in London, and take in the very first James Bond film, official that is, Dr. No. Now, I'm sure you love this bit, Cam. I'm going to read you the synopsis from letterbox.com. Mm-hmm. Uh, any, any bets on length? I'm going to say five sentences. Okay. All right. Dr. No. Now meet the most extraordinary gentleman spy in all fiction. In the film that launched the James Bond saga, Agent 007 battles mysterious Dr. No, a scientific genius bent on destroying the US space program. As the countdown to disaster begins, Bond must go to Jamaica, where he encounters beautiful Honey Rider to confront a megalomaniac villain in his massive island headquarters. That's very effective. Gets it all yeah. laid out right there. Now, how many sentences was that? That was eight. Eight? Oh, wow. Okay. Um, I really have to take issue with one thing, though, and that they said it was like the greatest literary spy. Um, what about Harry Palmer? I mean, we, we just got off on a good start there, Cam. Do we need to go back to that? <laughs> While we're taking shots at each other, Scott... What was going on with our planning where Dr. No falls on our 009 episode, but our 007 was Harry Palmer? Do you know, that only hit me the other day. And I just thought, wow, we we really missed that one, didn't we? (laughs) So ultimately, Harry Palmer is the mascot for the Spy Hearts podcast. Begrudgedly, apparently. That's right. Let's go to the grocery store and celebrate. (laughs) I don't go for these American tropes. (laughs) (laughs) Well, okay, Cam. Dr. No, what are your initial thoughts on it? So Dr. No is one that I remember I didn't see it in the first batch of James Bond movies I saw when I was a kid. I didn't see it until they released a bunch of them on VHS and sort of reissues. And I got a handful of them for Christmas. I remember I got Goldfinger um, and Dr. No and Thunderball. Those are the three. And I was very familiar with Thunderball and Goldfinger, but Dr. No, I'd never seen. I obviously knew of, you know, the Honey Rider coming out of the ocean moment and the Dr. No character, like kind of the iconography of the movie, but I'd never seen it. And I remember watching it and just being like, what the hell is this? Like, this is not a James Bond movie as I am familiar with, which is, of course, the Roger Moore era and then a couple of the really flashy blockbuster Sean Connery films. And so it was a movie that took me a long time to warm to, but over time it's become one of my favorites, like uh, probably a top five favorite. And um, I'm very excited to dive into why that is. Yeah, I I really only experienced this film properly a couple of years ago when I sort of binged the whole Bonds in a row. Um, I think I had seen bits that definitely had seen Honey coming out of the ocean. Uh, bits and bobs like that. Obviously, the um, Bond at the casino at the start tends to get shown a lot. Yep. But uh, I think as I came at this film as an older man, older man? <laughs> okay. <laughs> as I came at this film as an older man, uh, apparently I'm old, uh, I think I enjoyed it a lot more than I did some of the flashy ones that you probably enjoyed more as a kid because I, I found this to be a bit more of a 
a serious film, but fun oh, yeah. at the same time. Yeah, like to me, that's kind of the joy of the Bond franchise is that different ages, different movies appeal to. You know, when I was really young, something like Moonraker was just like the best. And then as I get older, I'm drawn more towards these kind of more serious literary takes on the material. Yeah, and, and it's, it, it, it has plenty of jokes. It definitely keeps its action going for two hours. But I think it's, uh, for a first outing, you have to give it credit for sort of knowing what it's doing straight away, more or less. Oh, yeah. I think, like, you know, we've seen a lot of movies where franchises start out bumpy, but I feel like this one is very confident right out of the gate. Well, just look at The Bourne Identity. Yeah. It's an okay film, but it, I think the Bourne films later on get better. And I think some people would argue this is a, probably a stronger entry than some of Connery's follow-ups. Yeah, like this movie doesn't have all of the tropes you would expect from James Bond movies going forward, but it has enough of them that it's completely recognizable as a James Bond movie. Absolutely. Um, now, before we dig into it some more, do you have any background on the film for me, Cam? Oh, there's no background on Dr. No, Scott. No one has ever written anything about the development of the very first James Bond movie. <laughs> Dr. No does like to keep himself private. That's right. So the genesis of what led to Dr. No, you know, it's um, a little bit of, you know, development hell for James Bond over a handful of years. Um, Ian Fleming, the author of the James Bond series, originally wanted to pitch um, James Bond to the movies. There was an adaptation of Casino Royale that aired in 1954 on the TV show Climax. He was played by Barry Nelson. I think they called him Jimmy, too. I think it was an American James Bond. But the idea of putting Bond in the movies was something that Ian Fleming really wanted to make happen. And so he wrote an original script called Thunderball with a writer named Kevin McClory. And um, the two of them went around trying to pitch it. They pitched it to Alfred Hitchcock, who wasn't really that interested. Um, the general idea was that I guess the novels were going to be a little bit separate, but they were going to make Thunderball an original property for the big screen. And it just never really worked. And so Ian Fleming ended up just turning that into another novel. And finally, in 1961, Ian Fleming sold a six-month option to producer Harry Saltzman, um, minus Casino Royale, which was already sold. It was already dealt with elsewhere. But the rest of the novels all went to um, Harry Saltzman. And he teamed up with Albert R. Cubby Broccoli, and they decided that they wanted to begin with Thunderball. But because of the Kevin McClory issues, Kevin McClory at this point was not so happy with Ian Fleming. There was kind of squabbling back and forth. And so they said, you know what? We don't want to get involved in this drama. Let's do Dr. No instead. And um, it kind of worked out kind of fortuitously because there was some, some real-world issues in terms of rocket tests and Russians perhaps interfering with U.S. tests. So it kind of had that zeitgeisty thing going for it. And, you know, as a novel, it was fairly... Uh, well, you read the novel, Scott, so you can comment on this later, but it seemed like one that they could adapt that wouldn't cost an absolute fortune. Yeah, certainly. Having read the book over the last couple of weeks in preparation for the film, it, I, it's almost a complete translation onto the screen. It's very easily done. And it's quite a riveting book to read, you know, quite a tense drama. So perfect choice, I would have said. Yeah, and it also is really only one location with, uh, you know, Jamaica, whereas some of the other Bond novels are a little more globe hopping in some ways or just more locations. So I feel like this one was budget-wise right within their, you know, abilities. I mean, it, it certainly would keep the cost down just, you know, filming in London and Jamaica. Oh, yeah, totally. And plus, it, this movie was shot fairly close to Ian Fleming's Goldeneye Resort that uh, he lived at, his, uh, you know, summer home. 
And so, who knows, maybe they were crashing on his couch half the time. <laughs> well, I mean, that's the question I had for you was, obviously, Ian Fleming had written all these books by this point and was, I'm sure, living off the money. But did he have any involvement in the production side of the film? He gave input and he had ideas, but I mean, he didn't have any sort of writing credit on the movie. Um, they brought in three writers um, and, you know, it's sort of an interesting group because they brought in Richard Maybaum, whose name you're going to hear a lot when we talk about James Bond movies. He wrote a fair amount of them. Um, and his main credits at that point were he'd written the 1949 adaptation of The Great Gatsby um, he'd also written the play that became the movie Gold Diggers of 1937. For those that don't know, the Gold Digger series was like a huge MGM musical series that were really popular in the 30s. And he did, I guess that would have been the maybe the third or fourth one. He wrote the play that they based that off. He also wrote a number of episodes of Wagon Train. So he was definitely like an industry veteran. Um, also involved was a, uh, a writer named Joanna Harwood. This was her first writing credit. She previously w worked in the script assistant continuity department. And she would go on to have a number of credits, um, a couple James Bond ones we'll get to later. And then there was also another writer named Berkeley Mather who wrote tons of TV. He also wrote one episode of The Avengers. So he had some spy credentials. And basically the three of them took turns on this material, um, trying to kind of beat it into a recognizable screenplay. And it's interesting that when you have the very first James Bond movie, you have three writers. Because nowadays, you know, if you see three writers on a movie, you kind of go like, Oh, like what happened there? You know, two is common, um, but three, four, five, that's when you start to, you know, question it because you always know when you see three or four, there was probably other people that just weren't credited. Yeah, like it's gone through several phases of being written and rewritten. and Right. Um, when it came to Ian Fleming involvement, a lot of that really came more to casting. <laughs> like Ian Fleming was just really into the casting department. Like he was floating, you know, Richard Burton. He really liked Richard Burton for the role. Um, I don't think they ever approached Richard Burton. They did approach Cary Grant. Um, Cary Grant said he would do it if it was a one-off movie, but because it was a franchise, Cary Grant was out of there. Um, the main name that they wanted that seemed that the producers all kind of agreed on was Patrick McGowan, um, who starred in the Prisoner TV show. Um, he did not want to do it for moral reasons. Apparently, Patrick McGowan was quite a religious man and just did not agree with this material whatsoever. And yeah, and can you imagine him in the role, Scott? I have to say I have no idea who you're talking about. So no, I can't at all imagine him in the role. <laughs> he played the older king in Braveheart. Are you assuming, being from the United Kingdom, that I can recall Braveheart with that clarity? Yes, yes I am. I mean, he was one of the stars of the movie. <laughs> it was basically Mel Gibson, Patrick McGowan. I'll, I'll admit to you now, I think I've seen Braveheart once when it came out on VHS and I rented it from Blockbuster as a young kid. That's all I've ever seen. Well, this really doesn't explain why you're wearing blue paint right now, but okay. <laughs> <laughs> I just like to rebel when I'm at home sometimes, you know. Um, another name that was also floated was David Niven, but ultimately Connery was on their short list and um, he ended up getting the role and he was somewhat of an unknown at this point. He had some acting credits out there. He was in like Darby O'Gill and the little people. Um, he'd done a few things here and there, but he came in as a kind of rough and tumble young man. So he was a very interesting casting choice. Not the sophisticated ideal you think of when you think of James Bond. No, uh, that's something I surprised me doing my research on Sean Connery before the role. I, I didn't know he was a former Mr. Universe. Yeah. 
I saw some photos of him uh, fully flexing his muscles, and I thought, okay, rough and tumble. Yep, that makes sense. He's got the physicality down. Yeah. Um, but yeah, he's, he's a bit more of a, a Harry Palmer, down-to-earth kind of guy than, uh, I don't know, than Roger Moore, I would say, really. Well, I should say they found him in a grocery store shopping for mushrooms. <laughs> Not baby food. Not baby food. He put that back on the shelf. Okay. Um, okay. <laughs> Now, it's interesting when it comes to shaping Sean Connery because the most important, really, figure, and one who doesn't get maybe as much credit as he deserves, is the director, Terrence Young. Terrence Young, um, sort of a guy who'd worked in film for quite a long time, not a lot of big, flashy names that you would be familiar with in terms of his credits, but um, he was like their fifth choice, sixth choice. He was not in the initial group. The initial group were actually a list of names I don't even recognize, um, except for the, um, the one exception of Guy Hamilton, who would go on to direct Goldfinger. They did approach him for Dr. No, but he turned it down. So they ended up going to a Terrence Young, and Terrence Young kind of was James Bond in real life. Not the secret agent part, but he lived a life of sophistication. Everything had to be the best of the best. He wore tailored suits at all times. You know, it was like caviar you know, when they were taking a break from like shooting, he just was kind of that playboy figure that very much informed what the character of James Bond would be on screen. And his job, one of his primary contributions was coaching Sean Connery in like the best things in life. So you're telling me this, this director taught Sean Connery how to be a posh guy. Yeah, and I think there's a really interesting um, element to the, uh, to the portrayal of James Bond that Sean Connery achieves here, which, I mean, he comes in as this very rough-and-tumble guy, and he's being trained by Terrence Young on how to be a sophisticated gentleman. And I often feel throughout the movie, you can feel this push and pull of this sort of brutish, tough guy with the sophistication. Like, you can feel that wanting to burst through kind of the exterior, and I think it's very effective. It's a... I don't know how much thought went into that in advance of what would wind up on screen versus just make this guy seem convincing as a, you know, English gentleman, but it really works having kind of those two sides. And that's something that's not really found in the source material from what I read in Dr. No, at least anyway. He right. just seemed like the English gentleman who is well-trained with a gun and spycraft, I suppose. Yeah. And so some of the other noteworthy casting um, choices were Ian Fleming really wanted his cousin, Christopher Lee, to play Dr. No, but um, Christopher Lee refused. Um, so he was out, but he did come back later for the man with the golden gun. So, you know, mm -hmm. he, he wised up eventually. Um, they had then approached um, writer and um, actor Noel Coward, who <laughs> sent a telegram back that said, Dr. No, 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 no. <laughs> They asked no, Noel Coward to be Dr. No. They did, yeah. What a weird no. universe that would have been. I know, right? Um, they also approached Max von Sydow. He declined as well, choosing instead to do the biblical epic, The Greatest Story Ever Told, which is a real bore, by the way. <laughs> Don't worry. He, he came back full force uh, with Sean Connery later on. Well, full force? Well, that's debatable, but we'll get there later. <laughs> yeah. Um, so ultimately, they went with Joseph Wiseman, who was a veteran actor and I think um, contributed quite a, quite a bit to the movie. Um, Julie Christie was the front runner to play Honey Rider. The reasons for which she was uh, replaced or, you know, cut at the last minute um, are kind of pervy. So I'm just going to, you know, uh, say that let's just say when they were casting this role, 
they were casting the bikini scene and Ursula Andrus got the full approval of the producers. And, and let's point out that the bikini scene is not in a bikini in the book. Oh, really? Interesting. Yeah. yeah. Uh, th- there's no bikini either. Right. Okay. Um, well, I'll leave that with you. Yeah, no more detail needed. Um, and Ursula Andress was a model at the time, not a trained actress. They ended up dubbing all of her dialogue um, with a woman named Nikki Vanderzil. Um, mm-hmm. Fairly convincing dubbing job, I got to say. But they really weren't, in a lot of these early Bond films, casting their leading ladies for acting talent. That just wasn't something they focused on until a little bit later down the road. So, so when Halle Berry turns up, basically, it's Jinx. Bingo. Oscar win, right? That's <laughs> no. it. That's it. <laughs> I think they start a little bit earlier, but yeah, like there's a little bit of a problematic history in terms of the casting with uh, the Bond leading ladies. You know, they were really going after a lot of these really great trained actors, you know, male actors for their villains and uh, for Bonds. But when it came to the female leads, they were often just looking for the kind of the, the latest models that were available. Which then obviously resulted in them having to dub quite a lot of the early ones. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It should be uh, mentioned, though, that Ursula Andress did walk away for the, with a Golden Globe for 1962 as the most promising newcomer. Uh, she shared it with uh, Tippi Hedren for The Birds and Elkie Summer for The Prize. Now, when you win the award with two others, I don't know what that says about the voting and how passionate people were, but it was not a runaway victory. How do you win an award with two other people? I have no idea. Like, there's been the occasional um, split at the Oscars. There was a tie in, I think, 1968, where Catherine Hepburn and um, Barbara Streisand both won. I think, I think that was the year. Um, and that's very rare, though. Like, it's only happened a couple times in the history of the Oscars. To split with two other people for a Golden Globe is bizarre. But the Golden Globes, we should also acknowledge, are completely, like, BS. Why is that? It's basically just an industry award created by a small, small group of journalists, um, foreign journalists, who want to mingle with movie stars. And so there's like, I think maybe like three or four dozen people voting. And it's basically like if you watch the Golden Globes on any given year, they will nominate all the biggest stars they can because they want to hang out with them at a party. Well, there goes our invitation for next year. Yeah, we're not popular, so no one cares about us. Um, <laughs> the other uh, casting choice that's kind of interesting is uh, Eunice Grayson and Lois Maxwell were both cast in this movie. Originally, Lois Maxwell was going to play Sylvia Trench, and she was very uncomfortable with the scene where Sylvia Trench is wearing kind of Bond's pajama top and playing golf. She felt it was a little too risque for her, and they ended up swapping her over to Monty Penny and gave Eunice Grayson the Sylvia Trench role, and that worked out real well for Lois Maxwell. I mean, I've got to, I've got to say, Lois Maxwell is just, it's just fun in all of the films she's in, but it's a great start here. Yeah, no kidding. And so as for the box office, as always, when you look at 1960s box office or 50s or even 70s, it gets a little crazy because of later releases and re-releases and double bills and all that sort of thing. So we tend to look more at lifetime grosses. Um, so this movie cost $1 million to make. Domestically, it made $16 million. International, 44 for a worldwide total of $60 million. Now, when you adjust $60 million in 1962 dollars, and ticket prices, um, it would be about $514 million now, which is really good. Like, that's a really, really solid. Nowadays, they would look at that. If you were a blockbuster and you grossed that, you're getting a sequel, and they're looking at that as growth. Like, we can build from that 514. I mean, I seem to recall the Skyfall 
broke the barrier for a billion, didn't it? Yeah, it did over a billion. Spectre did, I think, almost 800 million. So when you are a healthy franchise, they're looking at like that 700, 800 sort of number. Um, but 514 for a debut, you know, that's uh, pretty, pretty darn good. That's better than, say, like Batman Begins did. Okay, yeah, fair enough. And, and, and I think well-deserved. It's a good film. Yeah. Um, and for the year of 1962, it fell around number seven. Some of these numbers get a little jumbled up. Um, depending on what you're looking at in terms of ticket sales versus dollars and all that sort of thing. But ultimately, it did seem to wind up around number seven. The big three of that year were um, Lawrence of Arabia, um, which I think is very obvious why that was very high up the list. That's one of the mm -hmm. enduring classics. Um, How the West Was Won, which was a big Western. Um, it's sort of an anthology film a little bit. Um, John Wayne is the big sort of um, front runner in terms of the casting on that one, but Jimmy Stewartson as well. And it was a movie that was interesting because it played in, um, I think it was called Cinerama, where it played on three screens that were all stitched together. And that was a big deal and sort of a way to get people excited about going to the movies at a time where TV was really putting up a lot of competition. So that's like a screen in front of you, screen on the left, screen on the right? Yeah, yeah. And I have seen a movie like that. I saw Star Trek Beyond, which had Barco, it was called with three screens, but this was done in a little bit of a different way. Um, it would be three full screens versus the smaller screens on Star Trek Beyond, although maybe they were the same size. It just, they were so unnecessary that I just got annoyed with them. Whereas How the West is One was really shot to be projected across three screens. Like it's a very, you know, wide screen, massive, like landscape type of movie. They're using like wide lenses to get it all in and stuff. Exactly, yeah. It's not a great movie, but in terms of the visuals, it's pretty spectacular. Um, and then the other movie of that year that was really big was The Longest Day, which is a quite an epic World War II movie that chronicles D-Day. And there's a lot of stars in that one as well. John Wayne, again, it was a big year for John Wayne. But one of the uh, smaller roles in The Longest Day as Private Flanagan was a young man named Sean Connery. So a double bill that year for him. That's right. It was a big so he year. he filmed that before Bond, I assume. I would think so, yeah. Yeah. I don't, I don't remember him in the film. I've seen it. Um, it's a really solid World War II film. Uh, it doesn't have kind of the pumped up soap opera kind of stuff you would see in some of the other lesser World War II movies. It's actually mm. really does break down D-Day from all the different fronts. Um, so if you're looking for something that sort of adds to the experience of that opening of Saving Private Ryan, I would recommend The Longest Day. And was there any other sort of spy films this year that came out? Nothing that really jumped out. Um, no, like the spy craze really starts, really kicks off big time with um, um, Goldfinger. I think Manchurian Candidate might have come out this year, but um, it was I didn't see it on the top 10 or whatever. Fair enough, fair enough. And so that kind of wraps up, um, yeah, all the kind of the behind the scenes on Dr. No. There's a lot more we could delve into, but ultimately I want um, people to check out our Instagram where we're posting trivia throughout the week anyway on the movies we're covering. So I'll have some stuff there that uh, maybe didn't make today's podcast. And, and as you said earlier on, I'm sure the, the background on this film has been dug into in many a documentary and book. Yeah, in terms of the production, like it doesn't seem like it was a, you know, dramatic production. It doesn't seem like there was a lot of chaos going on on the set. It seems like it went pretty easily. Um, I'm sure there's, a, you know, the odd shot that was difficult, but um, not a lot of drama to really chronicle the way we have with some of the other movies like The Bourne Identity. Hey, you're holidaying in Jamaica. I'm sure it's quite an easy shoot. <laughs> I would think so, yeah. You got Ian Fleming there, you know, making you dinner every night. Well, all right then, Cam, that was sort of our... Our, our briefing on the film as it were 
But let's really get into the, to the, the dissection of Dr. No. You said you enjoyed it, obviously more as an adult, but tell me a bit more about that. Yeah, like it's a movie that's really grown on me because it is a little bit of a slow burn. Um, so much of it is based in just atmosphere, the feeling of James Bond. I love how many times the Bond theme is played while Sean Connery's like walking across a hotel lobby. And as a kid, that drove me out of my mind because it was just like, this isn't exciting. You know, I want to see James Bond, you know, like parachuting in, doing crazy things versus this movie where a lot of the excitement is really like a fist fight or just a tense situation. And it's all the sort of thing that I really love now when I come back to it. I think Sean Connery is astonishing in this movie. This is, I think, probably his best performance as James Bond. He just feels like an actor who's, you know, you think about it, he's a young actor, he's looking for a big opportunity, and it seems like he just went in and just bit down on this role and really just tore it to shreds. Like, he walked out just a superstar, and you can feel that in every frame he's in, and he really does carry this movie in a big, bad way. I, it, it truly seems like he's enjoying himself. Yeah, and you wouldn't get that later down the road. <laughs> no, 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 no. Uh, I'm sure we'll debate that as we get to the later films. But yeah, I, I, and from my point of view, I went back a couple of years ago now and I sort of text you throughout talking about how I was enjoying the films each time. But so I, I sort of experienced it in the continuity of how everyone else saw him at the cinema. And you can really just feel that they had an idea of what the character was from day one. Yeah, because you have that introduction. That introduction does not exist. You know, where he's sitting at the casino table and mm-hmm. Sylvia Trench introduces herself and says, Trench, Sylvia Trench. And then we cut to him and you have the buildup where you're just seeing his hands playing cards and everything, playing Baccarat. And Sweetie. Just, Sweetie. <laughs> and just the style of it. And then when they give you the shot and the Bond music kicks in, it's like, I don't know that you could ever plan a better introduction to a character than that. Like at the time, yeah, they know they want to make a series, but I don't know that they realize they're creating an icon, like a, a cinematic legend that is going to really be, in many ways, at the forefront of blockbuster cinema for decades to come. And yet, what a home run. And you look at all these franchises that come out now that are introducing a character that they know for a fact they want to build a multi, multi, multi-million dollar trilogy around. They don't do introductions this good. No, I mean, you can tell from the first 10 minutes from when Sean's on the screen, everything you need to know about Bond, really. Yeah, just the way he has the cigarette in his mouth when he introduces himself. He's kind of like the mumbling. Um, he, he feels just like ruthless. And I love how ruthless he is throughout this movie. And there's a lot of scenes I want to you know, discuss in terms of his portrayal of Bond. Yeah, I mean, as I was saying, just for those first sort of 10 minutes, he, he deals with Sylvia Trench in the casino, has his little flirt, gives his card so effortlessly. So you can tell he's a confident man. He's also good at gambling. And he gets back to his house after visiting um, M and getting the mission, seeing Money Penny flirts with her. And he thinks there's someone in his house with him. So he takes his shoes off, gets his gun ready, man of action straight away, obviously finds out it's a nice surprise for him instead. So it works out quite well. But uh, yeah, you can tell he's a, he's a man who knows what he's doing. And you watch a scene like later in the movie where he has his hotel room and he wants to basically set it up in case someone breaks in and he's putting like the hair across the closet mm. doors and putting powder on the briefcase. You watch the way like Connery walks around a room. He's like a panther. It's like he just has that sort of animalistic sort of sense, but also the sharp intelligence of an operative who knows how to set everything up to his benefit. 
And that's something that's, I feel like somewhat lost really after maybe these first couple Conneries. I don't know that it exists really up until maybe Daniel Craig after maybe from Russia with Love or Goldfinger. It's almost as if he's ahead of the game. Yeah. And he just seems smarter than everyone else. It seems like going forward when you have like Goldfinger that's such a huge hit, I mean, it feels like it becomes more like celebrity super spy movies, you know, where Bond is just this big kind of superhero character. Whereas at this point, they didn't have that, the benefit, I guess, in their eyes of knowing that this was a sure thing. And so it's like they're really working in a character level that you don't get later. It feels like they're really building a gritty character. I don't think when they're hiring, say, Roger Moore to play Bond in Live and Let Die, they're really wanting to delve into actual character dynamics versus we know who James Bond is. We know what the tropes are. We want you to bring a little bit of your personality to it versus like we need to build this character from scratch. And also things like um, the gadgetry, which we get a lot more of in the later films. Yeah. That barely exists in here. He's relying on his actual craft as a spy. Yeah, and we do have Q show up. Um, you know, Major Boothroyd does make an appearance. He's here, played here by um, an actor uh, named Peter Burton, and he does not come back. And his only role really is to just swap out Bond's guns. You know, he takes away his Beretta and gives him a Walter PPK. Which they make a massive deal out of in the book. It's like a whole chapter to itself. Yeah, these um, British spy novels are really big on gun switches because uh, Harry Palmer also had his gun switch in uh, um, Ipcris File. Oh, uh, yeah. That is true. Yeah. I don't know if that happens in the Ipcris uh, file book, but eh, probably. Mm. Um, but in, in terms of just uh, Bond himself and just Sean's performance as James Bond, they, as you said, they kind of known at the time they were sort of setting the template that everyone else would look to from then on in. Mm-hmm. Um, but as some of the scenes that stood out to me, obviously he's a very physical Bond. Yeah which I think people tend to forget. People think like Daniel Craig was, is, the, is the most physical bomb, which he, he probably is. But he gets in quite a lot of fights and he is a powerful looking dude on screen. He really is. And I mean, you know, I said like kind of that Panther sort of look to him where he's just like pacing a room. Um, you get that in the action too, where he always seems very laid back, but he's kind of like a coiled spring ready to go off. You know, you think of when there's that driver the chauffeur that's, you know, planning to kill him. And he takes him into that sort of uh, secluded area. And then Bond just like springs and takes that guy down so quickly. But you would never get that leading up where he's just kind of sitting casually in the back seat, making conversation, you know, but you can see that he's always taking everything in. Yeah, I mean, we spoke about this on one of the most, one of the films we covered recently. It may have been Hannah, actually. Mm -hmm. Correct me if I'm wrong. But he just seems like he is, aware of every situation he isn't really surprised or phased by anything so when he he figures out quite quickly that they didn't send the car to pick him up so he goes okay let's see where this takes me he's not worried about it he's in complete control even though the driver thinks he is and then he overcomes him in two moves in a little kick yeah and you see him you know later on take down quarrel and you know a guy who works at the bar like he's just a guy who always walks into every situation looking completely calm and relaxed but you also get the sense he's not. He's just ready to go off at any moment. There's a, a moment later on where him and um, Honey Ryder are captured and she's saying she's scared and he says he is too. And I was like, you would never hear James Bond say that ever again. See, I got the impression that was more to make Honey feel better. 
do you think it like I can completely believe that is why he says it, but I could also believe he's someone who's on the edge at all times because there is that you know that like he he has a fight or flight response, but his response is to fight, and he's always holding yeah. that back, like the sort of the panther as you say or the the, the coiled snake. Yeah, exactly. How many animals can we compare Sean Connery to? <laughs> I'm sure he's loving this. <laughs> he's like a mongoose, really, you know? <laughs> I prefer to think of him more as an emu. <laughs> a platypus. Because, ah. you know, you look at him and you think, maybe I, this guy isn't harm, you know, going to harm me, but you're wrong. <laughs> the platypus is the most deadly animal in the animal kingdom. <laughs> when that beak comes out, oh, you better watch out. That's right. I mean, to me, I don't know if there's a better Sean Connery scene in the history of Bond. And this is maybe a very controversial thing to say. Go on. But in terms of James Bond moments, I don't know that there's a better one than that moment where he's staking out uh, Miss Taro's apartment waiting for um, um, Dent to come and assassinate him or attempt to assassinate him. And he's just sitting there playing solitaire, waiting for him to show up. And how icy he is when he kills Dent. I don't know that there's a more bang-on moment of representation of the Bond character than that. Like, it is just cold, ruthless, and tough. Because that is the source material. Yeah. That nails it. I mean, that scene isn't in the book at all anyway. Um, oh, that's but, interesting. Yeah, that, that whole side story with the... What was she? How did he meet her? Miss Taro was like the secretary at his yes. liaison in Jamaica. She existed in the book, but he didn't go to her house or anything like that. Right. And, and before I go on about that scene, I, I made a note. Only Sean Connery's Bond could manage to sleep with a woman that's trying to kill him. Yeah. Um, you don't think Roger Moore would? I feel like Roger Moore would make more of a joke and escape. Yeah. Um, I mean... I'm, it's I'm, like a clown or something. I don't know. There's been a couple with him, but I don't know that the danger factor was that evident at the moment. Like, Mayday is maybe the closest I could think of. Um, but it's also, it, it's not couched in the type of danger that I think is going on in this situation. Where, like, Bond knows he is going to be, you know, uh, there's going to be an attempted assassination on his life at any moment. And so he really is just kind of waiting for it. He's making the he's springing the trap just to see who's actually putting the trap in place. Exactly. Yeah. Like he always feels like a guy who's several steps ahead. Mm-hmm. Whereas, like I feel like later on, Bond is. Um, I don't know that I would say he steps ahead so much as he's like this almost omniscient character who stands above everything. Yeah, I feel like some of the later films he's a bit more reactive than proactive. Interesting. Are you? What era are you thinking? Are you thinking of Moore or are you thinking of later? I'm thinking more Brosnan Craig. Okay. Yeah. Like yeah. it's not that he doesn't have a plan. He is obviously a capable spy. He is still James Bond. But later on, I feel like he's more just, oh, I've been captured. Now what? Right. Well, not, there's I like intend a... to get captured. Right. Yeah. Well, there's like a toughness to the Connery Bond that I don't think we really get back to until Craig, where he just does have that tough edge, and he feels like someone who's not kind of waiting for the mission to come to him. And we would get a couple movies with Connery where he did feel a little more passive, but here he feels like, pardon the pun, a very active agent in the story. But I'm just... <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. I'm here all You're week, welcome. folks. Tip your waitresses. Yeah. Um, no, he, he feels like he's taking the fight to Dr. No. Mm-hmm. 
which I don't think you could say for some of the Roger Moore films. No. And I mean, you look at scenes later on where he's like verbally sparring with Dr. No. I mean, that's the sort of thing we would get a billion times in the franchise going forward. Mm. But you can see how just Connery understands exactly how to play these scenes. And, you know, props to Terrence Young for directing the actors because what they're creating there, you know, these, you know, back and forth between him and Dr. No ultimately are being spoofed in Austin Powers, you know, decades later. Like, they create the template that we would see in great scenes with, you know, Goldfinger or some of the other great Bond villains. Speaking of Austin Powers spoofs, you've triggered triggered me to see a note I wrote down. Mm. When they're decontaminating in that shower scene, did they use that as inspiration for the toilet scene in Austin Powers 1? The toilet scene? Uh, Oh, you mean at the start of the movie where he's on the conveyor belt? Yeah, exactly. I didn't put it two and two together until I was watching it this afternoon. I thought, oh yeah, there you I go. Think it's, I think it's completely possible, but I also think that uh, the 60s was a crazy time for moving platforms. <laughs> they just love their conveyors. They really did, yeah. But you could see um, uh, Dr. No's um, like scientist outfit he was wearing, like the, the, um, the protective suit that he's wearing. Like mm-hmm. Dr. Evil wore a suit just like that. Oh yeah, so the sort of plastic suit that he was wearing. Yeah, yeah, where like I think Doctor Evil's like sliding out of chairs, wearing it and things like that. But <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm looking forward to doing those films. But it's funny because so many people point to Doctor No and say uh, that's not quite a Bond movie. Um, it's Goldfinger that really, really sets up what a Bond movie is. But I look at this one, and so many of the elements are there. You know, you've got the gun barrel. Um, the opening themes are a little weird, but you do have a lot of the imagery we'd get going forward. And so much of the, you know, shaken, not stirred, Bond, James Bond. There's so many of the tropes here that to me, it's a completely legit Bond movie right out of the gate. Yeah, there's, there are things missing, of course. And I can see what people would say Goldfinger is really where it starts, but come on now. Yeah, I mean, he's they, even they, doing the quips when people die. You know, like there's the guy in the dead in the backseat of the car, the, um, the chauffeur that he, who takes a cyanide cigarette. And it's just like he pulls up to the uh, hotel with the guy in the backseat. He's just like, uh, just look after him, will you? And I think the sergeant's just like, oh, yeah. And then just sees he's dead. And he's like, oh. Yeah. Or even like when the three blind mice, um, the three assassins who mm. are really committed to their bit. Like I have rarely seen assassins as committed to an act as these guys. <laughs> Hey, but, they know it works. And they've, they've survived this long doing it. Maybe that's just it. But when they die, when their hearse goes off the cliff and explodes, you know, Bond says they were on their way to a funeral. So the quips are there right from day one. That scene, um, I was quite impressed with the cinematography when they're doing the shot of it going downhill. Yeah. I just thought that was quite cool for 1962 because they've obviously put that camera basically in front of the car going downhill at the camera. Yeah. It's a great looking shot. Yeah. I mean, the car goes up in fire probably quicker than a real car would, but I'm 100% on board. <laughs> we'll let it go. Yeah. Um, the one thing I think is interesting, though, when we talk about things that don't quite meet what we expect of the Bond template is the three blind mice, where you have this trio of assassins who pretend to be blind and walk the streets, all connected, you know, hand on each other's shoulders. In a different Bond movie going forward, they would have a far more prominent role in I think the end game of the film versus here where they don't get much character and they are dispatched in a very spectacular way, but in a way that doesn't really acknowledge them as characters. More like an odd job figure or a Mr. Hinks or something like that. Yeah. Like characters like that, when they die, you are looking at, you know, Mr. Hinks or, you know, odd job or whatever die. 
Um, even some of the lesser ones, you know, we would get in some of the, say, Roger Moore's, the backups. Like, I think of, like, the blonde dude in um, For Your Eyes Only, who has, like, a big, you know, glorious death that really does focus on him as an actor. Whereas, like, the three blind mice are completely unseen in this hearse, and we just get that hearse going off a cliff. Yeah, so it's more about dispatching the bad guys than it is about their motivations or what they want out of it. Right, and also really setting them up as, you know, iconic villains. Yeah, they, they are just a, a plot device to kill Strangways and his receptionist, basically. Right, because, yeah, though we should say, you know, Strangway is like their Jamaica operative for um, the, I guess, intelligence service, and he's sending yep. signals back and forth, and they are the ones that assassinate him and prevent the signals from being sent, which is what sends Bond there because Dr. No is interfering with missile launches. Of course. And I think this is one of the only times where they use MI7 instead of MI6. Yeah, yeah. I thought it was really fascinating that when Bond goes to that office, um, M's like, it's 3 a.m., Bond. What are you doing? And it's like, M and Monty Penny are at the office at 3 a.m.? Man, what a horrible job. <laughs> I literally wrote down, who would want to work at MI7? It looks so boring. Yeah. <laughs> like, like, what is Monty Penny doing at 3 a.m.? There's no phone calls. <laughs> well, they all seem so busy in that dispatch office, though. Yeah, like, I assume she's doing, like, paperwork and things like that, but you don't get any indication of that. Bond shows up, and he's just flirting with her, and then he goes into the office, but it, you don't get the sense, like, just visually, that she's, like, combing over paperwork and things like that. Or that she's just walked in the door herself. Yeah. Do you want to move on to Ursula Andress as Honey Rider? Yeah, let's go for it. Obviously, now she's the first Bond girl. Uh, the first, I guess, leading one. I guess you would say Miss Taro is the first one on screen, but yeah. All right. May, actually, I should say, actually, not Miss Taro. It would actually be, um, I guess, Sylvia Trench would be the first Bond girl on screen. But I suppose yeah. we'd have to argue that, really, because I would say the Bond girl of the film is usually the one that the film of. I say revolves around, but like, sure, has a lot feeling. Um, yeah, I don't know. Like over the years, you know, it's kind of been used as sort of a blanket term for like a prominent female role in a Bond film because you know you would hear, for example, uh, Plenty O'Toole is referred to as like a Bond girl. But yeah, it's it's debatable. But I would obviously agree that Ursula Anders is the big iconic one that sets the template. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, she has that scene coming out of the ocean. I, I imagine a lot of future actresses who took on the, the role would probably look to her turn as a Bond girl and Dr. No as, as inspiration in some way. Maybe not a good idea nowadays, but in the early films at least. Sure. And when you have a, a moment like that coming out of the ocean, I think that would also be like something that because it's so instantly iconic, a lot of other you know actresses who are joining Bond movies, a lot of the appeal would be knowing you're going to get moments that are going to be basically carved in stone. And I think that's just appealing for any actor, just to know that you're going to create something that's going to be remembered. Yes, I mean, that could at least go on your reel or you'll, yeah. you'll be remembered for that. Yeah. Now, Scott, uh, Honey Rider, very similar as in the book. Am I right? <laughs> no, sir. Oh, Lord. Um, no, big difference, I would say. Uh, first of all, the name's different augmented we should say it's honey child rider mm -hmm. um and she she's presented in a different way her outcome is more or less the same they obviously get off the island together there's a little bit more about what happens but there's some drastic visual changes uh one i pointed out earlier right um do you i mean have you read this book i haven't that's the one i'm uh, on right now i just finished from russia with love 
Okay, fine. So she's presented as she's in she's from Jamaica. Okay. Um, and she's she's raised on a plantation. Right. And her parents are killed and she's raised by um a Jamaican nanny and then the nanny dies and then she has to fend for herself and then that's why she takes up uh, collecting seashells to sell to Miami. Um, so that's why she's on the island. So it's kind of the same story as how she got there. But there's, there's a striking feature. They, they make a good point to say that her nose is broken. Oh, okay. Yeah. And, and that uh, Bond keeps referring to her as an ugly duckling. Oh, wow. She's very self-conscious about the broken nose throughout the book. It's like she can't be seen as gorgeous because of this disfigurement. Uh, well, that's not uncommon in the Ian Fleming novels, too, where like a lot of the leading ladies of those novels, the lead female characters, um, are in some way damaged. Like there's something that's gone wrong in their lives, often with that's very like traumatic. Um, and I guess in this case, it's also physical in terms of the nose. Yeah, and it's something that certainly holds her back. But then there's also... I don't think her age is ever really given. I think Bond kind of estimates her age in his mind. But she behaves like a child in the book. Right, yeah. In her mannerisms, in the way she speaks, uh, (laughs) and how she acts, especially in front of Dr. No later on. Um, She's kind of petulant towards him, as a child would be. Ian Fleming, we should say, the author of James Bond, the creator, really kooky dude. And a lot of his novels are, shall we say, problematic. (laughs) (laughs) Mm-hmm. <laughs> there's a lot of that in those novels so some of his depictions are definitely um let's just say they don't hold up to uh you know the standards of 2020 or 2021 or whatever year you're listening to this in but uh yeah yeah i mean i'm not going to dig into some of the other differences between this film and the book because there's some there were bad choices made when this book was written let alone bad choices now um, there's even a foreword in my copy of the book just to sort of say, look, try and remember that you are reading a book that was written in the 50s. Yeah. Um, let's just say the Live and Let Die book is a real eye-opener as well. Yeah. yeah. But that's, I mean, there's still a lot of similarities, obviously. And I, I say the writers and Ursula do a good job of translating Honey Rider onto the screen. She's given less to do than the character in the book, unfortunately. Uh, you know, she, she has her own gun and stuff and she, she plays more of an active role in trying to escape. But overall, I think I, I still liked her turn as, as, as Honey Rider. I think she's, as a Bond girl goes, she's more memorable than some. She is. And I think Ursula Anders also has, she's mentioned she was very athletic at the time and participates in the action in a really strong way that some of the other you know, casting choices wouldn't in the future, but like you see her running alongside Bond, you completely buy it. You see her doing like, you know, jumping into the boat and all that stuff. Like she's very convincing as a physical presence in the movie and can contribute to the action in a way that's really exciting to watch as well. Which is certainly useful when she's paired up with Sean Connery because he's also quite an active Bond as well. So then both, you know, running down the beach or running down the side of the docks to get onto the boat, it actually makes sense and fits together well. Well, there's like a youthfulness to this movie that you don't get in a lot of the other Bond movies. You know, it would only be a few years, a few short years before you get to like, I don't know, You Only Live Twice, where Sean Connery looks a lot older and it doesn't have the energy you have here. Yeah, you can tell he is, uh, we said it earlier on before, but he is, he's happy and, and he's throwing himself into this role. Mm-hmm. Okay, Cam, before we move on to anyone else in the film, is, is there anything else you want to say about Honey Rider? Yeah, there's always been a weird scene with her that uh, I'm curious if you caught. 
Um, my my sister was actually the first one to mention it to me and I'd never noticed it, but I like this character's role in, you know, being trapped in Dr. No's lair and how Bond is kind of talking through the situation and, you know, her contributions to all the scenes. I think she brings a lot of character to that or, you know, Ursula Anders physically and then the uh, voice actors, you know, verbally. But um, there's always been the weird moment that's a little uncomfortable where they're having dinner and Dr. No wants her taken away and says, you know, the guards will entertain her. And he says it in a very gross way. And you're kind of like, oh boy. And Honey has told a story earlier in this movie about how she was raped as a young woman mm-hmm. and killed, you know, her attacker with a Black Widow spider. And so you're like, oh, this character has a very traumatic backstory, which actually really does match the sort of thing you would see in an Ian Fleming novel. Um, but you have that scene where she's taken away and the next time we see her, she's, you know, chained down in sort of this, I don't know what it is. I, I, it's like kind of like a well or something um, in Dr. No's lair and the water's kind of rising up on her, but she's not wearing pants. And she was wearing pants when they took her out of the scene. And I've always found that very strange as soon as my sister pointed that out. I'll be honest with you, I didn't notice that in my rewatch today. So that's, that's a concern. That is a big concern. And I don't know how much that has to do with a cut scene because there was originally supposed to be a scene where she was chained down and being attacked by crabs. And I guess when they set up all the crabs to shoot this sort of thing, well, I don't know if you've seen crabs in real life, but they don't move quickly and they don't look particularly scary. <laughs> well, you may know this about me, Cam, but I have a, a bit of an irrational fear of uh, crabs and lobsters. So if you could keep the crab talk to a minimum, I'd appreciate it. <laughs> So I guess what happened was they set up all the crabs. They weren't moving quickly. They were very docile and several of them were dying. So ultimately that scene was cut. There are photos of it out there if you look around online, but um, I don't know that that explains the lack of pants. (laughs) I'm just thinking back to the book and they do, they do use crabs in the book. That's how, because basically Dr. No says he's going to dispatch of Bond by putting him through a set of trials, which they do a very quick version of in the film. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a lot the, the tunnel sequence is a lot larger in the in the book it's about f- three chapters worth but they he says he's gonna get rid of honey by strapping her down on the, on the mountain and then having this migration of crabs slowly eat her right um so i i understand where they've got the crab idea from but that still doesn't really answer the question of why did they need to do any of that with her her outfit I have absolutely no idea like that's one of those answers that I feel like is lost in time and I'm sure there was probably a cut scene that maybe explained this. I'm not saying it explained it logically, but explained it at least in terms of a throwaway sentence where we'd go, oh, okay, I understand this versus what we get now, which is just really weird and has a kind of a sinister air to it that I don't even know was as intended, but is maybe accidental a little bit with um, this, you know, the preceding line that is given before the next time we see her. Well, I mean, again, going back to the source material, the treatment of the workers of Honey is mentioned throughout their interactions and what they would potentially like to do to her, unfortunately. And also her unfortunate backstory. Right, yeah. Is in the book as well. So I, I understand potentially where they got the idea from. Yeah. Doesn't mean they needed to translate it, but they've shown, and uh, this is only one of the bits of trivia I got, um, was about the fish tank, if you've read about that. Um, which element of the fish tank? I mean, it, the, I, it's, it's my favorite visual maybe in the movie. It's incredible. Um, so they got uh, some stock footage of fish 
Yeah. And it turned out when they went to use it on sort of the, I don't know how they did green screens back in those days, or they spliced it in, but it was magnified. Right. So they had to do an, um, like a dubbed line where they, uh, Dr. No explained that because of the, the glass, it makes a magnifying effect. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so they, they showed they can dub lines to explain things, but they didn't do anything for this. Yeah. I just wonder if they thought maybe no one would notice. I mean, I didn't, to be fair, but that doesn't really forgive it. No, it doesn't forgive it. But it, the fact is, like, it, it wasn't until my sister pointed out that I ever noticed it. So I wonder if they just thought they could slide it by without anyone noticing. Who knows? But she's wearing pants in the next scene when they're escaping. Uh, no, she doesn't. She doesn't have them for the rest of the movie once he rescues her from that well. What? Yeah. How did I not notice that? I know. It's one of those details you don't notice, but as soon as someone points it out, you can't stop looking at it. Yeah. Oh, that's just... Yeah. Okay. Well, I mean, films at this time, we can level lots of critiques at it in, in that sort of realm and in treatment of women. And... Um, I, I agree. I think we should be loving those sort of critiques at it. I'm glad that we do notice this stuff now and, and point it out. Yeah, I mean, when you're tackling some of the older James Bond movies, um, you're going to have these things pop up. Um, we could talk about Miss Taro, another very problematic character, because I guess she's supposed to be Chinese? Yep. Yeah, and she's played by Xena Marshall. Um, I actually think Zena Marshall's like really good as this character, and I wish she didn't have this baggage attached to her. I mean, I think they now I'm hearing and sort of talking about it with you. I'm beginning to understand they'd lent a bit too much on the source material. It's weird because like a lot of movies of this era would do like a somewhat obnoxious makeup technique to make you know Caucasian actors look more, whether it was Chinese or Japanese or mm-hmm. you know whatever they were wanted these actors to fill in these roles for. Um, it's very weird. And like Miss Taro, they just slap a wig on her and they're like, there you go. And I mean, that probably leads us on quite well to Joseph Wiseman as Dr. No. Yeah. Yeah. And as I was saying, there's no reason why they couldn't have slightly changed the background of Dr. No and his operation, which would have then affected some of this uh, makeup usage. Yeah. Cause he does have the more um, noticeable makeup going on. Um, they do say he's, I guess, half Caucasian, but that still doesn't really work. Um, is when you're putting prosthetics on people's faces to make them look like another race, right there, underline that, that doesn't work. It doesn't matter yeah. what era. As soon as you're adding prosthetics, no, guess what? You've gone too far. Straight up bad choice. Yeah, bad choice. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, you know, pull up, pull up. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, Dr. No... I, I made a note of saying he's not in this film until the hour and 27 mark, which is bizarre. Well, he's kind of teased, though, because you have that scene in um, where Dent is, like, freaking out. And I want to talk a little bit more about Dent a little later, because he is the Oromoff of this movie, the sweaty, panicky dude. But, um, <laughs> but he goes to Dr. No's, you know, kind of a meeting room, which just also props to Ken Adam, the set designer on this movie, who would do a lot of the great Bond sets. But what he does in this movie really does set the visual template as well. You know, you referenced the um, underwater aquarium there that Dr. No has. He also does this meeting room, which is so bare. It's just like a, like a skylight, basically, and a bare room, but it looks incredible. But we get the introduction there of Dr. No's voice. Um, which is like really sinister. I think Joseph Wiseman, um, okay, racially, you know, problematic casting, but in terms of the voice and the menace he projects, he's very good as a villain. He really does set the template for, you know, Bond villains. Um, but like you get a voice there 
And then you get like his legs and his hands in a scene where Bond and Honey have been, you know, drugged and he goes in and just kind of inspects them. It's not until the 127 where you actually get the physical. It reminded me a lot almost of, you know, I was also, I'm also big in the comics world, but I used to collect comics a lot. And I remember when they had Venom and they were setting him up in the Spider-Man comics, you had an issue where it was like his hands. And then the next issue, it was like a brief visual of him. And then he really didn't appear until the next issue in a full physical form. So Dr. No reminded me of that, kind of teasing him out for, you know, I guess it's maybe what, like teasing him for 20 minutes and then he shows up um, in that last half hour. Yeah, that sounds about right. I, you just would have wished they delivered a bit more in the last half hour. I feel like Joseph Wiseman, problematic elements aside, delivers so much. Like, I really do think he is spectacular in this role. And I feel like Dr. No leaves such a significant impact, at least on me, that I walk away from the movie thinking of him as a very iconic, unforgettable Bond villain. Um, whereas like a lot of actors, if you had them show up in the last, you know, 25 minutes, um, I don't think they would have had any impact whatsoever. Like think of, um, uh, poor Julian Glover in Free Your Eyes Only, um, who plays Christados. Like that is a somewhat nothing villain and like now cut his screen time down to 20 minutes. You would not even know who the villain of that movie was anymore. Whereas Dr. No, uh, he definitely has impact. It certainly does. I mean, he's got the whole... No hands with the gloves instead. Um, he he's he does a lot with what he's given. I have to say, Joseph Wiseman. He's he's not got a lot of time on screen, and he does make the most of it, and certainly grabs your attention. Grabs, huh? The way he grabs like a metal oh. sculpture and crushes it. Oh, <laughs> not grabbing much, is he? I just love how still he is. He's like a walking computer. Like he has that sort of HAL 9000 um, Hannibal Lecter kind of thing going on where he's just so still. He doesn't react to things. And you can tell Bond gets to him just because his voice raises just a slight bit, just a little bit. Yeah. And uh, this is the bit I felt like could have had two or three minutes more, which was the, the, the witty repartee at the dinner scene. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which is... That is a few chapters in itself in the book. Right. Of, of Dr. No and, and Bond just sort of going back and forth and him trying to get under Dr. No's skin and Dr. No having to sort of, I know everything, upper hand, upper hand. <laughs> <laughs> oh. Oh. I wonder how many hand jokes I can make. Uh, yeah. Um, and then in this film, obviously you get a lot less of that, but they had to obviously cut talking down. It doesn't really propel a film forward, I would say. Right, yeah. Um, I feel like we get just enough Dr. No for him to work, but of course, I would always want more. I mean, he leaves you wanting more. That's a credit to the actor. So They do say go out leaving them wanting more, Cam. I don't know if that would have happened if they'd run with their first draft of the screenplay where Dr. No was a monkey. I had that written down in my little bit of research I did. I mean, that's an outrageous twist on it. Can you imagine? Like, how incredible is that? I mean, that maybe that explains why he has so little dialogue in this film. Do you think Joseph Wiseman had to go through his script and cross out monkey and write his own name over top? <laughs> when I say ooh, ooh, ah, what am I trying to say? Yeah. That's my motivation. I, it's like, I don't know that this monkey would really succeed at uh, interfering with missiles. <laughs> now, you want me to hurl feces at Bond? Fair enough. I can do that. I'm a method actor. I can do it. <laughs> Okay, okay, okay. Give me some coffee in a half an hour. 
<laughs> can we shoot that scene first thing in the morning? Is that okay? <laughs> Wait, actually, that actually brings me on to Dr. No's demise. Yeah. Do you know much about that from the book? I do, actually. But do you want to lay it out? Because you've actually read the book. I have, and I will. Now, the book is partially obsessed with guano. Right. And, and for those that haven't watched Ace Ventura 2, When Nature Calls, guano is poo, specifically bird poo. And this book, uh, basically, Dr. No is harvesting it to make money. That's his main operation. How does one make money doing this? Apparently, it sells as fertilizer. And this is actually a real thing. People do still sell bird poo right. as, as fertilizer. Okay. So anyway, in the film, as you've all seen, Dr. No meets his end by being boiled alive in water. Horrible. What a horrible death. Like, that might be among the worst Bond villain deaths. Like, yikes. He gets a sort of T2 ending, basically. Yeah, he doesn't give a thumbs up, though. I don't think he could. He gives a <laughs> thumbs down. <laughs> it's like, big thumbs down, big thumbs down. <laughs> it's, it's just him trying to make a thumb, but he, his hands have melted off, and he's not got anything yeah. left. So. Yeah. Oh, God. Um, but in the book, he gets buried alive in feces. Hmm. What's a worse way to go? Boiled alive or that? I feel like both would really suck. Yeah. yeah. Like, I don't want to die, but I don't really want to die either of those ways particularly. No. I think I would probably take the three blind mice death. Um, that one's at least fairly quick. I don't think yeah, I want... Shoot me, shoot me up all day, but um, do you know what? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go out on the leg here. An arm and a leg. And <laughs> I'm going to go with the guano death. Okay. Yeah. Um, oh boy. Is it instantaneous? Like, does it just like crush him or is it like he's trapped under there? Like suffocating? It's like it's coming out of a conveyor belt, but quite fast. Yeah. So he, he's slowly being buried in it up to his head. And then. Oh, but the more. suffocating aspect would be brutal. Yeah. It's not, it's not like a, a, a one-ton weight of poo falls on his head. That would be quite easy. Right. Um, but no, it is like a, a, a and it's and it's not liquid. It's turned to dust at this point. Yeah. So okay. he's like, I imagine coughing his way through his final seconds. Oh boy. Yeah. That, that, that's grim. Uh, yeah. I don't want either of these things to happen, folks. But uh, I, I guess I'd take poo. Yeah. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> um, moving was, on from poo <laughs> yeah i was curious let's uh, go from that to something a little classier i was curious if you understood that moment where bond stops and stares at the painting i actually looked it up afterwards but i feel like you might already know yeah this was a painting at the time um it was done by the artist goya it's called portrait of the duke of wellington and it had been stolen and so the producers were like We've got a good joke. Let's put this painting in there and everyone will laugh because they'll know that Dr. No was the one who stole this famous painting. And boy, is that a joke that's aged like soggy bread. I mean, it, 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 it's basically a funny joke until 1965 when it was found. <laughs> yeah. And now everyone is just baffled as to what this even means. I didn't recognize the painting. So I had no idea. It was only when I looked up on IMDb for trivia that that came up. I just sort of, why did he double take? It was like the pigeon. Like, why have to double take? Yeah. That used to be a thing in old movies. I remember there's an Alfred Hitchcock movie. I think it might be Dial M for Murder. I might be wrong about that. But 
where a policeman just stops and stares at this painting on a wall and the camera focuses while he's like looking at it very disapprovingly. And it was because Alfred Hitchcock didn't like abstract art and he was his commentary on how much he hates abstract art. But I'm like, no one understands this. No one knows what you're doing. That is a cutting remark to abstract artists out there, I imagine. It really is, yeah. He was never invited to their award ceremony ever again. No. So um, what did you think of Felix Leiter? Felix Leiter is the most fascinating non-role in the history of movies, maybe, where it's this recurring character with no personality traits. None whatsoever. He's an exposition machine. Yeah. He is played by Jack Lord here, who would go on to Hawaii Five-0. Uh, they wanted him back in future movies, but he just was priced out of their range at a certain point. Uh, but I think Jack Lord is... Is he memorable? Is he memorable because he's just Jack Lord and I recognize him? I don't know because the character doesn't do a lot. Um, he does wear those like Catwoman sunglasses, which I <laughs> think yeah. are amazing. <laughs> <laughs> I think of all of the Felix Lighters, he's probably in my top three of ones I remember the face of. Okay. So on these, like, I think we should have from now on going forward, whenever we tackle Felix Lighter, have the Felix Lighter scale of blandness. Because okay. a lot of the Felix Lighters are super forgettable. You barely remember them once the movie's ended. Mm -hmm. uh, so, like, on a scale of one to five, what level of bland is Jack Lord Felix? Five being the most bland and one being the least bland. Okay. So, like, five is, like, really plain chicken nuggets. Yeah, five is, like, literally, like, wait, what are we talking about? Is it, what? Like, I feel like I just got lost in the conversation because I don't know who this character is. Uh, I would say Jack Lord on our Felix Leiter meter uh, comes in at a two. That's what I was going to go with as well. Like, I think, you know, obviously this actor, Jack Lord, has a lot of presence. He would, you know, star in his own show for a long time. And, uh, you know, it's just, he's a star, right? He's, you know, future star. Yeah. So he has that charisma. But in terms of what his character does, it's like nothing. No, he gets a couple of jokes in with Quarrel, but really he's just there to sort of give Bond the information he needs to move on to his next plot point. Yeah, like Quarrel has way more personality. And I mean, he's a character, he's played by uh, John Kitzmiller. Um, there's some problematic elements of the depiction of Quarrel, but I feel like he has badass moments which make him a very like worthwhile Bond assistant or whatever, you know, uh, colleague, you know, the way you would get in some of the other ones going forward, like Karen Bay and From Russia With Love. Mm -hmm. um, I love the moment, I think maybe the most badass Quarrel moment is when they capture that photographer who's been trying to get photos of Bond and he's, you know, kind of holding her against her will while they're interrogating her. And then she smashes like a small bottle or something and scrapes down the side of Quarrel's face and he doesn't even flinch. Just touches it, gives a little smile and then uh, says she's a tough one, this one. Yeah, like to me, yeah. that is where Quarrel is a badass character because some of the problematic stuff, they make him like scared of this dragon on the island and it's... Uh, a little bit, um, it feels a little retrograde in terms of the depiction they're going for there. But And there's a couple other verbal insult things where I'm like, I think that's intended racially and that's not good. But um, yeah, like there's some problematic stuff there. But I feel like this character, like largely through the performance of uh, Kitzmiller, like he is a very memorable and worthy character that I think is pretty cool in his awesome moments. Yeah, I mean, in a film full of memorable side characters, 
Mm-hmm. It'd be easy to get lost in that mix, but you know, you will remember Quarrel, and he doesn't have Bond doesn't have many other good sidekicks going on after this. No, a lot of them would actually fall into kind of the more older mentor type, where, as mm-hmm. I said, Karen Bain from Russia with Love or Dr- uh, Draco in Honor Majesty's Secret Service. But yeah. um, this one is someone who's of a similar age as Bond, maybe a couple years older, but is more of an equal in many ways yeah it's like i wouldn't say coral works as a spy particularly but he's like he's the guy people go to when they're in jamaica to get something done yeah yeah i was curious though coral's biggest fear in this movie is this dragon on dr no's lair um that dragon held up pretty well right oh i bought it even in 2020 (laughs) <laughs> I, fair, I was scared i turned my tv off for half an hour i was that frightened to be fair uh, honey's terrified of the dragon as well and she points to tire treads and says uh those are the dragon tracks <laughs> she's obviously lived in jamaica she's seen a car she must understand what tire tracks are i don't understand how she could be frightened by it i have no idea you uh eagle moss actually put out a whole series of bond vehicles in these little dioramas i've got a few of them I've got the man with the golden gun's car. I've got the um, the moon buggy from Diamonds Are Forever, and I've got the Lotus, um, the underwater version from yes. um, yeah, the Spy Who Loved Me. And I, I think I've also got one of the like summer vehicle vacation vehicles from Live and Let Die. Um, but uh, they actually did put out one of that dragon tank, and I think I'm gonna have to buy it. I think you're gonna have to now. Yeah, it's it's a very memorable visual on the screen. Like I actually really think that tank is cool in a very '60s quasi-futuristic kind of way but um it's ridiculous that people think this is a dragon like i I don't want that bearing down on me to be fair with a flamethrower at the front that doesn't sound like fun to me it didn't work out well for quarrel unfortunately not his Um, death is horrifying and and spot on in the book to be fair oh really same way huh same way interesting exact same scene how do they describe the dragon in the book it's a bit bigger in the book and it mostly moves in shadow. So you never really get a fair description of it until Bond sees it much later on because he actually escapes on that until he gets to the boat. Like a lot of this movie is shot day for night. And just for people that don't know, that's where they would shoot uh, a scene during daylight hours and then darken the film to make it look like it's at night. And that's when you get kind of that bluish look to night scenes. Um, I think actually the opening of Jaws is also shot day for night. But uh, anyways, um, when you have that scene and you have the tank, I feel like if you actually shot that at night in actual, you know, dark kind of black of night kind of setting, it might look better. But when you do day for night, it looks kind of funky. Especially when you've already seen the, the treads of the tires. So you know that it's a truck. Yes, I feel like the tread scene should have been cut. I, I mean, to be fair, Bond in the book is skeptical of it and he he hears the diesel engine and says in his head about it in the book so he's he's a step ahead as always Mm -hmm. but you can buy why they're scared of it in the book because you don't see it yeah you just sort of hear the noise and the two eyes and the flame Mm -hmm. so you can kind of see why they might think it's a dragon i like to think of terence young on set and i think he does an amazing job directing the action throughout this movie and a lot of the you know bond kills like i think terence young is one of the big unsung heroes of the Bond franchise. Um, but you have to imagine when he's directing this tank, he, even in his mind, he's like, okay, well, let's try to make this work. Yeah, they did, I, 
you said it quite well a minute ago. If you take it as like a 60s version of what it was, I'm sure if they did this now, they could make it a lot more convincing. Yeah, I would think so. Although um, I, just, I just don't know that when you're trying to build a dragon, it's ever really going to work because we know what a dragon looks like through popular culture. And unless it's a real dragon walking around there, I don't know. And the only other thing it's left to imply is that people from around there are too you know, stupid to know the difference, which is a horrible representation. Yeah, yeah. Um, you would see going forward that uh, they would be a little looser with some of Ian Fleming's writing. Like, you know, you get to some of the novels and they, all they're taking is like names and characters. Um, I think maybe they even realized that there was some problematic stuff they needed to um, excise. Yeah, I think there's a f- if we're critiquing, there's certainly a few things I would have taken out of the screenplay from the book. I don't think we need to know Dr. No's upbringing mm, or, yeah. or th- that influence on his upbringing. His race shouldn't play any part of it, really. Yeah, because if you take that away, um, I think the character is, works seamlessly to this day. Like, I don't think there's anything there. Even, and same with Miss Taro. Miss Taro has like, there's almost no identifiers that this character is Asian at all like the only thing is she says it's the like the hair and her saying the dinner line and it's like you take all that away and you've got a really solid performance from a memorable kind of femme fatale character and you don't have the baggage so yeah i think they could have eased up on that or just cast a you know chinese actress as a chinese character but in 1962 they weren't probably going to do that no exactly And, and maybe get rid of some of the honey rider stuff that you pointed out to me yeah yeah exactly so mm. you know that's just bond but uh bond of the 60s i should say because they were sticking closer to ian fleming and ian fleming as i said is pretty much a madman um the other character i want to actually reference though i, I mentioned him earlier was dent dent's smaller role he's just sort of this underling of dr no but he's the one who's kind of tied to the murder of um strangway at the start of the movie um i love dent dent is a character who feels like the lone actual human being who's wandered into this movie and just he is not up for being in this story. <laughs> yeah, he, he somehow has found himself in this uh, drama and he wants to get himself as far away as possible. He's like sweaty. He's got like a nervous twitch. He just looks miserable in every scene he's like having to feature in. Like I love the moment where Bond goes to his office and is interrogating him. And this guy can't put up an act even for like 10 seconds. I think he's like, as soon as Bond leaves, he's having a stiff drink to calm his nerves. And I mean, he goes to Dr. No's lair to beg for help. And Dr. No's like, don't worry, dude. I got this. I got you covered. Take that tarantula home with you. (laughs) It's just like shaking on the way out. But if I'm Dent, I'm like, really? The tarantula? That's your answer? Like, I I don't feel that confident in this plan. Yeah, like send 10 assassins or something. Do something else. Why have I got to give a spider to this guy? Yeah, and I mean... uh... I think in the book it was a centipede, right? That's right. Yeah, yeah. he's not in the book. Well, he is in right. the book, but he doesn't do any of this stuff. Right. Yeah, but there is a centipede that's crawling on Bond, right, in his sleep or yeah. something. Yeah. Yeah. That, and that spider seems pretty cool. Yeah, I think the centipede would have been more visually repulsive. I think, um, but I don't think uh, Sean Connery was going to let them anywhere near him with a giant centipede. As it was, this tarantula was walking on glass. I don't think I noticed it the first time I, I watched it, but this time I, I hadn't mentioned earlier, but I upgraded recently to the Blu-ray sets. Yeah. So I got it in glorious HD and you can clearly see that there's no connection. That's fine. If I'm Sean Connery, I'm like, I don't need this thing crawling on me. 
I'm not really an anti-spider guy. I don't mind them. So I, I, I would have been okay with it. But I don't like them crawling on me. So I don't know if... I, look, if they're paying me a lot of money, I'll suck it up and do it. But I also think it would be hard for me to be in character acting while this thing's crawling on me. I think that's the thing. If you just have me laying there with a spider on me for money, I can do that. But if I have to actually stay in character and give a performance, that's tougher. You heard it here first, everyone. Cam has a price. That's right. That's right. Um, I also just want to give a shout out to um, Peter uh, Hunt, the editor on this movie, who I think really does redefine action in a way that maybe is lost on modern viewers, but at the time was a big deal. Just how his technique of cutting on movement and inserting sounds like impact sounds makes the action very visceral in a way that, you know, when we look, for example, in our era, when we saw um, the born supremacy, which has like, you know, that shaky cam action, that's really propulsive. um, That felt like a real game changer for action, but that's what Peter Hunt was doing here with his um, depiction of action. I was quite surprised by sort of the physicality of this film. I had, I think because my most recent experiences of Sean Connery bonds had been, I think I've watched, Never Say Never recently in Diamonds Are Forever. Yeah. Which, don't get me wrong, he's still quite a physical Bond. But but at this point, he is, you know, he is a statue of a man, the physicality about him, and if you feel the punch. Yeah. There was just one thing I wanted to... I mean, we did shout out to it earlier, but before we wrap it up, I suppose, I did want to shout a little bit of love over to the score of this film. I mean, obviously, Monty Norman is coming up with the... The music here, obviously, John Barry. Does he come up with the Bond theme or was it Monty? Monty Norman comes up with the Bond theme. Yeah. I mean, to just pull that out of nowhere, a theme that is still great now. Oh, yeah. I mean, the, uh, you know, at the time of when we're recording this, the uh, second trailer for No Time to Die has been dropped. And it's just wall to wall that theme. That theme is iconic and it works right out of the gate. Mm-hmm. And, you know, especially it first comes in in the casino scene at the beginning and it's just, just encapsulates everything. It's such a great bit of music. It is. It's fantastic. And yeah, John Barry did a lot of the orchestrations for this movie. And uh, John Barry would take the central role as the, as the you know, composer going forward. But it's just great, a, a great collaboration between these two out of the gate. And uh, I'm looking forward to many more movies of John Barry music that we're going to be covering. Absolutely. Now, is there any sort of final words you want to have on the film, Cam? Um, I'm just curious, Scott, if you've ever seen a scorpion sting itself to death in the sun. I can't say I have. What about a praying mantis eat the head of its lover? No, no, not in London. (laughs) What is with that weird monologue that uh, Honey has? It's from the book. Is it? Okay. It's another thing that makes no sense, but I'm a big fan of moments in Bond movies that don't make sense. That's kind of my favorite thing ever. Um, So uh, that, that weird little aside she has... It's bizarre, but I love it. Yeah, in the book, she's trying to prove to Bond that she knows about the world and how he doesn't know about this sort of stuff. Right. Uh, sort of prove her worth to be... Yeah, and, and then the, the flamethrower thing turns off, I think, and that's when... Yeah, that, that, that sounds about right. But um, it is a weird line, for sure. It's very strange. But no, I think that kind of wraps me up for, um, for this one. I mean, I really love this movie, and uh, it's always a pleasure to revisit. Some of the Bond movies, you know, when we revisit them, it's like, look, I don't know that there's any Bond movie I can't happily sit through, but there's some that are maybe a little more trying in in some spots, some of the more protracted action stuff that maybe hasn't held up as well. But Mm -hmm. for me, Dr. No is just one of those immersive movies I can just watch over and over. I actually had watched it 
um, during the pandemic, uh, my sister and I have been doing um, bond watching sessions. We'll get together every week and watch a bond movie and then talk back and forth on Skype while we're, while we're um, watching it. And I had watched Dr. No, not long ago, maybe like a month ago, a month and a half and diving into it just so soon after that um, was like nothing. It was just, it's still a pleasure just to go, you know, dive back into this world and re-experience it. Yeah. And I mean, we, we've, kind of pulled the film apart a little bit but i just want to say it is a terrific film and for 1962 which I, it's, it's hard to put that sort of uh, disclaimer on things but my love of cinema comes from you know 80s 90s personally mm-hmm. so for me to be this engrossed in a film that came out in the 60s kind of like with north by northwest as well uh, it right. really makes me tip my hat to it Right. And when you say 80s, 90s, you mean 1880s, 1890s, like that train pulling into the station film, like that really grabs you. I literally have it on 4K Blu-ray and I watch it on repeat. (laughs) And you hit the ground every time that train comes at the screen. (laughs) I'm just so excited. (laughs) Um, Okay. I guess the train is pulling into the station. Cam, I have a question for you. Yes. Does Dr. No make the knock list? Or the note list. Yeah, uh, then this is an interesting question because I think for a lot of people, they, they would say, um, you know, well, you know, from Russia with love, uh, that's maybe a clear knock list, but I don't know about Dr. No. But for me, Dr. No is one of my most pleasurable Bond films to watch. Um, it also sets up the template so, like, magnificently. Um, for me, this is a, a total in on the knock list. I am 100% yes on this one. I think this is just a riveting film to watch. Um, maybe some of the stuff that bores other people, I just find riveting. But I like watching Bond walk across lobbies set to the Bond theme. Um, and Sean Connery, I just think, again, debatable, but I don't think he's ever been better. So as like the iconic Bond performance, this is, this is it for me, I think. And uh, yeah, everything works in its favor. All the elements are there for the most part. For the most part, they aren't quite refined, but they're all mostly there. And I think Terrence Young directs the hell out of this movie. So it's an in for me. Yeah. Nobody does it better. Makes me feel sad for the rest. <laughs> so all I have to say about this film. Yeah, it, it's an easy in for me as well. It, you you got to think all of these following films had at least this film to go back and look at. Yeah. This film managed to come up with something. Obviously, it had the Fleming books, and there's been spy films before this film came out, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, but it managed to create an iconic character that we're still talking about now in 2020. In 1962, uh, a screen version of it, I should say. And Sean Connery bursts onto this film, the score blaring, and he is just oozing exactly what Bond should be. And if we're looking at films that you would recommend to someone to get an idea of what a uh, spy film is like or if you're recommending a Bond film I don't think you can go wrong by recommending Doctor No yeah and if you were to also recommend um, Bond films that evoke the spirit of Ian Fleming's creation I would be looking at Doctor No um, you know the new Casino Royale obviously but um, Doctor No is definitely one of the few of the Conneries that I think really captures the spirit of the novels yeah and I'm trying to be vaguely aware of other Connery films coming up and I know people will say you know Russia with Love or Goldfinger is, is kind of the height of Connery. Yeah. Uh, and, and in some ways they're right. Obviously it's their opinions, of course. But I feel like this template is so strong that it should be the one that we use on the knock list. 
this one for me was always 100% in. So I'm glad to hear that it's uh, on the knock list. Yeah. There you have it, folks. It is officially on the knock list. And with that revelation, the dossier on Dr. No is complete and filed as classified. But before we announce next week's episode, I want to take a second to throw a little love to our friend Lorraine over at Once Upon a Nightmare podcast. And she has a special message for our listeners. Hello, this is Lorraine, your host from Once Upon a Nightmare. Every Tuesday, I like to delve into the horrors of the world, be it fiction or real. I've had a healthy and what some will call a strange obsession with true crime and horror movies for well over 30 years now. So if those two topics pique your interest, then please go check out Once Upon a Nightmare podcast. It is available on multiple platforms. And don't forget to rate, review and subscribe. Thank you. So yeah, make sure to check out uh, Lorraine's podcast. I actually recently listened to the Blade episode on the 1998 Marvel film. Um, Really interesting look at a Marvel film that I don't think gets its credit, uh, that it's maybe due. And was definitely at those early days of setting up what would be the Marvel Universe, you know, going forward in some ways. Um, She also did an episode lately on House of a Thousand Corpses. So check that out as well. And uh, whatever other horror movies, I'm sure, you know, whatever you're interested in, she'll be tackling soon. So, yeah, Once Upon a Nightmare. Great stuff. But we uh, did tease everyone before. Cam, what are we doing next week? Well, Scott, we're going from one iconic film to another. We are going from Bond to the 1986 Whoopi Goldberg comedy, Jumpin' Jack Flash, which I have never seen. So I'm looking forward to talking about. Yeah, I mean, I found this film on sort of a list of spy films when I was researching for this podcast initially. I've never seen it. I'm a massive Whoopi Goldberg fan, so I'm really excited about checking it out. Can't wait. Now, listeners, your mission, should you choose to accept it, is to, of course, watch Jumping Jack Flash with us and let us know what you thought. You can see the list of films that we have covered so far and will be covering at letterbox.com slash spyhards. And speaking of social media, you can, of course, follow us discreetly at spyhards. S-P-Y-H-A-R-D-S on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. But until next week, listeners, good luck among the shadows. (laughs) 